Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. The SoFlo team hit the streets of Tampa. This beautiful Gulf Coast city is known for its pristine beaches, theme parks, Super Bowl champions, and historic Ybor City. But did you know Tampa has a sordid past? In fact, Ybor City was once a hotbed for criminal activity during Prohibition. And just as organized crime was getting underway, Charlie Wall was at the forefront of mob-related activity. He was a businessman, mobster, and political figure, both well-liked and highly feared in the community. To dig deep into the seedier side of Tampa's history, Michelle McArdle and I talked with Scott Ditchie, an author and historian who specializes in organized crime. Scott is a member of the Mob Museum's Advisory Council and has published multiple books and articles about organized crime. He has appeared on local and national television and over 40 radio programs. Scott goes to great lengths to uncover the darker and cooler side of history. Michelle begins by asking Scott how Charlie's upbringing influenced his rise to criminal mastermind. When we were looking up Charlie Wall, we saw that he comes from a very prestigious family. Can you explain their successes and what impact you believe it may have had on Charlie? Charlie Wall is part of a, of a family and an extended family that, for lack of a better descriptor, are the founding families of Tampa. They're like the blue blood families of Tampa. Some of the oldest, um, more powerful people that kind of developed Tampa in the late 1800s. Uh, Charlie Wall's father was a very well-known physician, had a lot of political power. He was related to the Likes and the McKay family, two, you know, two families that are still around to this day. And Charlie takes a different path in life starting pretty young. He has a few outbursts. Um, he shoots their housekeeper in the head. Oh, my God. So... Uh, by the time he's in his late teens, early 20s, he's he's obviously gone in a different direction and not following his family into the legitimate sphere. But his family's political connections, um, as you go through Charlie Wall's underworld career, definitely come into play, and he's able to to leverage those relationships to his advantage. Through his namesake, basically, yeah, right? His name, His name recognition. So how or why did he turn to a life of crime? I don't know if there's any like catalyst that made him turn to a life of crime. We, we do know in his early years he was a morphine addict, and that actually extended later in life. He starts showing up in the late 19-teens, or especially by the early 1920s, he's running um, narcotics operations. He's involved in bootlegging. He's involved in uh, legal gambling, Bolita. So sometime between like the mid-19-teens and early 1920s, Charlie kind of develops into this, uh, this criminal power in, in Tampa. Can you go back a second and explain Bolita? Bolita, there's a couple different ways to play Bolita, but Bolita at its core was a game very similar to the lottery. So you would go to a gambling casino or a bar where they threw Bolita they would have a bolita set. They're primarily the ones you see are made out of wood, sometimes ivory. And they'd have 100 balls numbered 1 to 100. They would throw it in a sack. People would bet on which number would be selected. They would shake the bag up. And 
throw the bleed into the crowd. Someone would grab onto a number, then they'd either dump all the other numbers out or, or cut the bag, and that would be the winning Belita number. Others just had people reaching in the bag and pulling out numbers. So it was a game of chance, sometimes fixed. Uh, sometimes they would fill the balls with lead, especially in the wooden sets. There's a setup at USF that they pulled a couple numbers out and opened them, and there's little lead plates to, to oh, weight cool. down certain numbers. And and then somewhere uh, in the in the 30s, it kind of morphs into general numbers rack in Abelita. It becomes kind of a catch-all phrase for the numbers. The best way to describe it, I think, is instead of going into a Publix or a convenience store and playing the Florida pick three lottery, you would find your Belita guy. And depending on which Belita guy you, you bet with and what kind of Belita game you played would determine how the winning numbers were set. For example, if you played the game New York – they would take the last two or three numbers from the stock market average of the day. That would be the winning Belita number. Uh, ah. Cuba, they would take the last couple numbers from the Cuban National Lottery that was drawn every Saturday afternoon. So it really was it became incredibly popular. And especially 20s, 30s, during the Great Depression, you could put down a penny, nickel, and you know, make some pretty good money depending on who you bet with. And everyone was betting and everyone was selling Belita back then. Was there an incident that led to his rise in power? I don't know if there was specifically an incident that led to Charlie Wall's rise in power, but you can point to the beginning of Prohibition here in Tampa as one of the catalysts that empowered organized crime in the underworld in Tampa to kind of take that next step. Tampa Bay is a large protected harbor. And back then in the 20s, before all the development, there were a lot of little coves and inlets. You had... Port Tampa Bay, which already had a pretty good trade back and forth with Central South America and especially Havana. And by the mid-1920s, it becomes a very important port for illegal booze, primarily rum, corn sugar, molasses, the raw materials coming out of Havana, also narcotics. There are some accounts that I've read where Tampa was second only to New York City in the, in the 1920s for narcotics being brought in, and a lot of that was primarily being brought in through Havana. So prohibition and the effects of that, much like in Chicago, New York, and other major cities, really kind of gives organized crime that boost and takes it to the next level. And then both Charlie Wall and some independent operators and, and the young Sicilian mafia all benefit from that growth. He seemed to have two lives because I know in our research that he gave back to the community a lot. So in one sense, he's very beloved. I guess in another sense, is he kind of feared? Oh, yeah, people. absolutely. In fact, I, I know a relative of his kind of a, you know, distant at this part, but but her mother, um, mom or grandmother remembered Charlie was, you know, always given money. There were accounts of him, you know, throwing, throwing coins to the kids on the streets of Ybor City. And, and it kind of parallels other gangsters at the time, like Al Capone setting up soup kitchens during the Depression. You know, the, these... They view themselves as as businessmen who were in a business. That business was gambling or bootlegging. So, yeah, I think he wanted to curry favor with people. So he would be, he would have this kind of uh, philanthropic nature almost. Please explain some of the locales that they would frequent. In Ybor City, Charlie Walls, I would say one of his main bases of operations was a a uh, gambling casino called the El Dorado. Uh, the building's not there anymore. It was torn down in in the early nineteen seventies. But it's where the new Hotel Haya is in Ybor City. It's right on that parcel. And this was a two-story brick building. It was it was a really a, a large casino. Um, it was well-known throughout Tampa as, as a 
gangster hangout. Um, there were accounts that inside they would have guys walking around with shotguns or machine guns, um, patrolling to make sure everything was running okay. They, they threw Belita there. They had entertainment, food. There were a few others in Ybor City. There was Pody's Cafe. There was uh, Eddie and Tito's, or Tito and Eddie's, I should say, which was run by Tito Rubio and Eddie Varela, two underworld figures who both were later killed. Uh, Seraphin's Cafe, the Imperial Theater. These are some of the early Belita spots. Uh, the Lido Cafe, L-I-D-O, was another one. So there, there were no shortage of places there where Belita was going on. And then you also had some of the real popular restaurants like Las Novedades or the El Pasaje Cafe, where they were serving illegal alcohol, they were running gambling, but you know these were like going into a family restaurant type thing. So there, there was a lot of places that were legitimate places of business that were had these little side hustles going on. It's funny because we went, you know, we were at the Columbia, and we were getting a tour, and there's a lot of rooms in there. And one of the questions we asked was, you know, what were some of your famous guests? But at that point, I'm looking at all the rooms going, you can almost hide here because you could be so private. Mm -hmm. So I could see how a celebrity or other person would go there because they could eat or do business or do whatever they want and be very, very private. I'd imagine some places were set up like that. Yeah. So the funny thing about the Columbia is if you read FBI surveillance, there's a particularly large trove of FBI surveillance reports from the 60s when they, when they first really started tracking organized crime figures. And in Tampa, the Columbia restaurant is frequently mentioned, not because it's necessarily a hangout or place of business, but like Santo Traficante, Jimmy Longo, Frank Dechidu, they went to eat there all the time. They would have meetings there all the time. There's accounts of the FBI following mafia figures from New York to the Columbia restaurant to meet. Um, but there were also celebrities there, politicians, locals there. So it was just a real popular place for people to go. And this this extended to both wise guys and the FBI. They would go eat there as well. You had just mentioned the murder of Tito Rubio. Can you explain the significance of that murder? So Tito Rubio was was aligned with Charlie Wall. And what was going on when he was killed and when Eddie Varela was killed, um, they were killed uh, within a year, year and a half of each other. You had a war between Charlie Wall and the Sicilian Mafia for control of the rackets in Tampa. And there were over 30 gangland killings and attempted assassinations and, and probably some we don't know about that happened in that 10-year period. It might not necessarily sound like a lot, but Tampa was a pretty small town back then. So these these were big news when someone got killed. They were killed generally by shotgun blasts. That was kind of the modus operandi in, in Ybor City and, and, and Tampa. But Tito Rubio, actually, I did a, I did a piece on him for the Mob Museum blog, and, and there's a quote where um, someone said he was a good man in a bad business. <laughs> um, but it, it things became violent because there was this you know jockeying for power the, the mafia wanted a bigger piece of the pie. Charlie Wall was fighting back. You had other independent Belita guys, Spanish-Cuban guys wanting a bigger piece. It became known um, during that time, and, and Eddie and Tito's murders both are known as part of this. It was known in the newspapers of the Era of Blood. So that that's kind of the nickname that the, the local newspapers coined that time in Tampa. So everybody kind of has their high points and their low points. Can you explain where Charlie Wall started to taper off? What might have led to like his 
downfall. In the 30s, Charlie Wall, there were actually three assassination attempts against Charlie Wall, unsuccessful at that time. So he was feeling a lot of pressure. In the fall of 1940, Ignacio Antonori, who was the head of the mafia at that time, is, is killed outside of Ybor City. Part of looking at the mob in Tampa is there's never been a major informant. So a lot of what we know are kind of pieced together from law enforcement reports or newspapers or just anecdotes and stories. But probably the best way to describe it is by the early 40s, Charlie Wall had started losing power because the mafia were gaining power. And Charlie Wall later testifies in front of Congress that Santo Traficante Sr., goes into partnership with Charlie Wall and kind of pushes him out of the rackets. And and there's there's a lot of stories I've heard over the years that, that Traficante basically told Charlie, if you step aside and leave, get out of the rackets, nothing will happen to you as long as I'm alive. And you know, Charlie Wall leaves Tampa for a while. He actually testifies in front of a congressional hearing in Tampa in 1950 about the mob in Tampa. He tries getting back in the rackets. Um, there There's Stories of him being in town when certain mob guys are killed. Anecdotal stories, but but stories nonetheless. It seems like maybe he's trying to make a power play, but nothing happens to Charlie. And then it, by the mid 1950s, Charlie is you know much older. He he's a kind of a drunk around town. He's hanging out in a lot of bars. He's getting drunk and he's bad mouthing the mob and the traficantes. And I've heard this from cops on the beat back then who regularly ran into Charlie and were be like, Charlie, you better not say that about them. He's like, nothing will happen to me. So Santo Traficante Sr. dies in August of 1954. And on April 18, or April 20th, 1955, Charlie's wife, uh, who's out of town for a few days up in Claremont, in North Florida, visiting her sister, comes home. She unlocks the front door and she walks to the back room of their house where their bedroom is. And there's Charlie on the floor with his throat cut and um, a bunch of birdseed and buckshot around on the floor. And it was from a blackjack that was used to hit him in the head. And he was probably killed the night of April 18th. That's the last time anyone saw him alive. He was probably, well, he was definitely killed by somebody he knew because he let them in the house. And um, it's still an unsolved murder, but almost everyone, and if you read the the, the intelligence or, or the investigative files from the case, is most likely a mob hit and probably a lot of old grudges that were being settled. What's your theories of the underground tunnels? So on the west side of Ybor City, kind of near where the original part of the city was settled, the land over there is a little bit higher. And there's a there's kind of a ridge in that part of Ybor City. You can see it if you're if you're down on Seventh Avenue towards the Italian Club and looking to the west. And most of the buildings in the original part of Ybor City have basements or or subfloors. And uh, I, I know a lot of people in Florida get jealous because you can't have a basement because of the water table. <laughs> but that part of Ybor you could. So there have been urban legends and rumors of tunnels under all these buildings in Ybor City for, for decades. And if, and if you go back and read newspaper accounts in the 20s and 30s, you don't see a lot of contemporary evidence or contemporary stories about that. But we know it's true because they've some of them have been discovered. There are two types of tunnels that I know about that I've seen. One is basically for lack of a better term, a large drainage tunnel. Um, and there are a few of those that we know about. One uh, that was opened up uh, about three years ago during construction of a new office building in Ybor City. Um, it was big. You had a, kind of had a crouch to walk in it, but you could see pipes going into it. it. It went down on an incline towards Port Tampa Bay. It was a brick line tunnel. 
probably built in the late 1800s. Most likely it was a, a type of sewer or more likely a storm drain type of tunnel. But there are some tunnels, two that personally I know about in Ybor City that go between buildings and they go between buildings that sold, played, or Belita or were gambling casinos at one time. So there are stories that when the police would raid it, they would hide the incriminated eminence underground. Um, one of the buildings also had a brothel in it and supposedly that tunnel, which, which I've never seen, but I've seen, I've talked to people who have seen the entrance of it, which has since been bricked over. There are absolutely tunnels in the neighborhoods north of Ebor. I've been to two homes, one that had functioning, well, sealed up, but absolute functioning tunnels that went out towards Hillsborough River. Uh, and another one that had a large, about 20 by 30 concrete bunker behind the house that was built in 1927. And that one was used to store illegal liquor. It was in the backyard of a house of a restaurateur in Ebor. And there's newspaper accounts of when his underground lair was, was raided. So there absolutely are tunnels in Ebor City. I have the bricks of one of them to prove it up on my, um, <clears throat> up on my bookcase. Um, they probably weren't as numerous as everyone thought, um, but yeah, they, they do exist. So that that's an urban legend that has been proven true. So are you saying that you believe that there's two types of tunnel systems? One is more utilitarian, you know, for the city, and then the other one is more for like illegal means? Yeah, I, I think actually I, I should preface this by saying I just about a month ago was invited into a building in, in the heart of Ebor that also looked like it had a, an entrance to a tunnel that was going under uh, under a road. And those, all three of those that I've seen or know about were buildings that were played a role during prohibition or where illegal gambling was going on. And the latest one I saw was a headquarters of a narcotic smuggling operation. So while those might not have been like giant, you know, well-maintained tunnels. They they offered underground storage for for likely illegal uh, legal materials. That's very interesting. Tell us about your tours that you do. So for the past uh, 10, 12 years, we've been doing the, it's the Tampa Mafia tours on tampamafia.com. And we do a walking tour of Ybor City. It's about an hour and a half to two hour walk, depending on foot traffic and stuff. And we kind of take a chronological history of organized crime and the mafia in Ybor City in greater Tampa. And, you know, Ybor City being a national historic district, even though not all the buildings are still around, a lot of them are, which is which is nice. Um, Florida doesn't always do the best job of keeping its history standing. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it's a, we've been doing it, like I said, for over 10 years, and we're as busy as ever. People really, really seem to enjoy it. You know, I will say most of the people we get on the tours live here, but a lot of people aren't from Tampa, which this being Florida, that's not a surprise. But I, I've been surprised over the years how many people that are Tampa natives that come on the tour that either, you know, heard stuff about it or, and I'd get people that grew up in Ebor would share stories with us on the tours. And I think even some of them don't know all of the, you know, the underworld kind of history. So that, that's been really successful. And uh, we, we run those from September through May. And then um, we're going to be doing a, a, a – it'll be up on the website. Probably by the end of the summer, we're going to be putting up a self-driving tour that someone that you can download and because uh, there are a lot of great spots that are outside Ebor and you know not can't really walk to them, but throughout the greater Tampa area. Excellent. We can totally come back for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Well, thank you, Scott. Thanks for being with us on the SoFlow Weird Show. Thank you. This was great. That was mob historian and author Scott Ditchie. For more information about Scott, his books, or his crime tours, go to tampamafia.com. We'll also have a link on our website at soflowweird.com. Now we'll take a look at the women who had an active role in Tampa's old Belita lotteries. This next story was found in a series of articles from the Tampa Bay Times called Tales from the Vice Squad. The Tale of Dorothy Puglio and Her Bible of Bets by Paul Guzzo. When Tampa was a hotbed of organized crime from the late 1800s through the mid-1900s, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office charged the Vice Squad with cleaning up what the federal government deemed one of the most corrupt cities in the nation. The Tampa Bay Times has obtained a cachet of Vice Squad reports from the 1950s and 1960s, which offer insight into their investigations and what they were up against. She wore flowery dresses, owned a mom-and-pop business, called her ex-husband Papa Joe, and kept a Bible in her purse. Dorothy Puglio seemed more like a soccer mom than someone involved in a criminal enterprise. But in the 1950s and 1960s, when the illegal lottery was as much part of Tampa as cigars and Cuban sandwiches, those working for an organized crime syndicate came from all walks of life, age, ethnicity, career, and gender. The role of women in organized crime is usually stereotypical in movies. They are portrayed as stay-at-home wives or girlfriends who look the other way as the men break the law. The story of Dorothy Puglio, told through newspaper archives and a Vice Squad report, shows that women sometimes had an active role. Her tale begins in February 1962, when the Vice Squad raided Dorothy Puglio's business, Maryland Avenue Grocery, on a tip that numbers were being sold there. Tucked inside the woman's purse, the Tampa Tribune reported, was a wad of about 50 bond tickets and a Bible hiding another 29. Bond was an illegal lottery based on the stock market. Gamblers chose three numbers from 1 through 100. The winning numbers were then taken from the daily closing sales of the two New York stock exchanges and bond list, the Tampa Times explained in April 1960, by taking the fifth digit from the right on each of the three closing sales figures. But none of the tickets were hers. Dorothy Puglio, 40 at the time, told the deputies. Her ex-husband, Papa Joe, put them there. Joe Puglio, 52 at the time, and not at the store, was later arrested. Both Puglios were charged with operating an illegal lottery out of the grocery store. That was not abnormal. Newspaper stories from 1962 detail similar businesses being involved in the illegal lotteries. S&M Grocery, Step-In Grocery, Greenhouse Cafe, Manny's Cigar Store, and Urso's Fish Market were among them. The arrested included owners and employees of different sexes, ethnicities, and ages. None of those individuals were in charge of the criminal operation. They sold numbers and collected the wagers for a larger syndicate. S&M Grocery was raided around the same time as Maryland Avenue Grocery and was also owned by a woman, D.G. Fogardo. She, too, was charged with operating an illegal lottery. Women had other roles, too, according to the late Susan Rivera, whose late husband Johnny Scarface Rivera ran numbers before they met. She shared stories with the Tampa Bay Times in 2010. 
A woman, Rivera referred to as Jitterbug, sold Belita from a grocery store and picked up bets from other businesses that she then delivered to a drop house where the wagers were recorded by the Umbrella Syndicate. To remain off law enforcement radar, she would taxi neighborhood kids to wherever they needed to be, creating the illusion that she was an active mother. She delivered the bets after the kids were dropped off. Other women who delivered bets, Rivera said, hid the evidence in their underwear. The tickets found at Maryland Avenue Grocery were receipts of bets that were later picked up and delivered to a drop house. Which syndicate did the Pulios work? After the February 1962 arrest, Joe Pulio offered to make a deal, according to the Vice Squad report. He and his ex-wife would turn up quite a few big shots if the Vice Squad would get them out of the trouble they were in. The Vice Squad and the Assistant State Attorney offered immunity if he would give us information in regard to the higher-ups, says the report, written by the Vice Squad's Kenneth Henning. But this writer did not hear from Mr. Puglio from that day on. So, the Vice Squad returned to Maryland Avenue Grocery in June 1962 and, in a trash can, found torn-up tickets for Belita, a game that typically based the three winning numbers on the Cuban lottery or pulled the winning digits from a sack filled with balls numbered 1 through 100. Dorothy Puglio again claimed innocence, telling the deputies that they were misinformed. Those were grocery receipts, she said. She was again charged with conducting an illegal lottery, but maintained the same defense during her court hearing in July. And she brought a witness. Henry Kemp, 40 at the time, testified that one of the slips of paper that the deputy said was an illegal lottery ticket was his grocery receipt. Knowing that the ticket found at the story was a Belita ticket and nothing else, says the report, a vice squad deputy waited for Kemp to emerge from the courthouse so we could place him under arrest for possession of Belita. Dorothy Puglio's attorney protested the arrest, telling the deputy that his client, Kemp, had a right to counsel, according to the report. But Kemp denied that he had an attorney and said he had never seen that lawyer until the day they were in court that morning. Kemp changed his story during questioning. He did know the attorney and was at his office with the Puglios just prior to appearing in court. He also stated that Mr. Puglio and Mrs. Puglio had gotten into an argument in the attorney's office, says the report, with Joe Puglio demanding that his ex-wife stop messing around with Belita. Kemp then admitted that he played Belita through Maryland Avenue Grocery and agreed to let the vice squad search his home, where they found illegal lottery tickets with numbers matching some of those taken from the store. Joe Puglio paid Kemp's $1,500 bail. The Times was unable to learn the outcome of Kemp's arrest. Joe Puglio was sentenced to pay a $100 fine. Dorothy Puglio had her grocery store's liquor license revoked for two years. If they're going to be in the Belita business, they have no business being in the liquor business, the Tampa Tribune quoted the state beverage department director as saying at a hearing. The director then addressed Dorothy Puglio, Do you know that every time you buy Belita, you put money into the pockets of gangsters here? Dorothy Puglio responded, yes. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFloWeird. And please join our SoFlow Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. 
As a fan of the SoFlo Weird Show, there are many ways you can become involved. Our goal is to create a community of weirdos who celebrate all things strange in the Sunshine State. Here's Michelle to tell you how you can join our team. Are you a super fan and weirdo to the core? Then consider joining our SoFlo Weird Street team. Get free stickers and represent us on social media with hashtag SoFloWeirdStreetTeam. Just send us a message on social or through our website and you'll be on your way to street team status. Like what you hear on this podcast? Then consider giving us a review and please share with your friends. If you wish to support the SoFlo team in our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go to our website, pick up some SoFlo swag, or buy us a coffee, and we'll give you a shout-out on the show. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, and Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production, inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody. <laughs>